All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fuck, stirs? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. How's it going? Bruce Wagner is on the show. Bruce fucking Wagner. One of my favorite writers. He's an author, screenwriter, and a guy who has had a serious influence on my brain. And every time I read his book, I don't know if I've been invented by him or not. I, I'll, I'll try to talk about that more clearly. But Bruce Wagner is here. He's got a new book out, Roar, which I didn't finish. Doesn't matter, though. Doesn't affect the conversation. So that's happening. That's coming. Okay. I would like to say that my HBO special taping is coming up on Thursday, December 8th at Town Hall in New York City. The first show is sold out. But I think you can still get tickets to that second show. It's 930. Uh, and it's uh, it's all part of the taping. We'll be I'm running it twice. You can go to WTFpod.com slash tour for ticket info or go to thetownhall.org. Not townhall.org. Thetownhall.org. The other one is some Trump-related thing. Much to my surprise and chagrin. I don't know if I can fully explain the impact that Bruce Wagner has on me. I don't know how many of you know him. He's, you know, he's a genius writer, but but it's it's dark stuff, man. It's dark stuff. And I think I read Force Majeure. I'll tell him about it. I think I read Force Majeure um, probably in the early 90s. I believe Janine Garofalo gave it to me. And it's a Hollywood satire. You know, uh, just darker than Day of the Locust. Darker than What Makes Sammy Run. Darker than The Greats. It's like, it is the guts of it. I was fucking on board. I believe it was... Force Majeure is 1991. I'm losing you is 1996. But I was reading one of those books when I auditioned for Lauren Michaels. I was in the middle of reading one of those books. It's probably Force Majeure. And because of the nature of the way that Bruce writes, and he weaves in real characters in with fictional characters in this primarily show business driven, uh, you know, psychic fucking apocalypse, every book, <laughs> psychological apocalypse. There was, I was, you know, a little buzzed and I, I didn't know if I was af- actually meeting with Lauren Michaels or if, if it was in the book. But that's because my brain was different, a little more porous, a little more problematic. But I'm losing you. I'll let you go and still holding is sort of, it's not, I don't, I talked to him about it. It's not really a trilogy, but I didn't read, uh, um, I, I'll let you go. I read I'm losing and, and, and still holding, still holding great fucking book. Oh my God. There's a, I talked to him about the, the plane crash anyway. So Bruce has been, you know, he's been always on my periphery. He was always around. Then he calls me or he emails me out of nowhere, wants me to read part of the audiobook for his new book, Roar, wants me to play the main character in his audiobook. So that gets me and Bruce together. And I had ordered his book, The Marvel Universe Origin Stories, because he had had trouble publishing it because he was being sensitivity uh, screened and the publisher bailed on him so he he self-published it or not really self-published it he released it into public domain on the internet and then anyone could print it so i ordered one of those but i couldn't read it because the print was shitty and there were no page numbers so when he calls me up to uh or or gets me to do the audiobook i'm thrilled to do it even though i haven't read roar he said it didn't matter i still haven't read it but i will but i just read marvel universe doesn't matter sorry i'm excited but he sent me this beautiful copy of Marvel Universe and I burned through it. So fucking disturbing. The spiritual, emotional, 
psychological bankruptcy woven through these characters. And there's a kind of a mythological element. There's a whole second part. And Bud Wiggins is back from Force Majeure. And just the, the fucking pure darkness in, in just a sort of almost kind of... Uh, I don't know what you would call it. it there's a thickness to the satire. There's a there's a, a a kind of a dark, viscous malignancy to the whole thing, just creeping through these characters. And there's show business running through these characters and drugs and real. I mean, I can't even fucking explain it to you. But when I read his stuff, I can't. Like I I read a lot of people. I have friends who are writers. But when I read his stuff and the way that he captures the consciousness and the, what's going on in the heads of you know these particularly kind of morbid and disturbing characters, I don't I don't know where it comes from. It just it doesn't seem like just writing to me. It seems like he's a vessel of some kind, and I get very tweaked out by the writing. And years ago, when I was at Air America. And you can we, you can go listen to the history of that show, where I got started on these mics. Uh, if you have the WTF Plus, there's new bonus material. Uh, it's Brendan and I talking about Morning Sedition, the original radio show we met each other on and worked on for Air America. But I interviewed, I came out here once and I interviewed Bruce and I didn't know what I was doing as an interview. And I brought a dat and we sat at a restaurant. I must've talked to him for three fucking hours, just probing. I wanted to know, I needed to know, what are you? What are you, Bruce Wagner? Where is it coming from? Who's delivering this? Is it the, are you a dark wizard? Are you channeling something? Where are you getting these voices? How is it moving through you? What is happening, man? Why, why do I feel that there's no boundaries between me and your book sometimes it was it because i am a broken man i am a psychologically hobbled person that i integrate so thoroughly with the perverse and horrible streams of consciousness of these people not that i'm one of them but but it because it's my business and because i've always since back in the day since back when i had the cocaine psychosis since back in the late 80s when i would stand out on the porch of the comedy store looking at the then gutted sunset tower building where i ate the other night and went to the bad guys party and had dinner I would look at it in my full psychotic state, believing I understood the mystical foundations and the eternal darkness of what became Hollywood and what manifested Hollywood and what Hollywood really was and what was moving through it. It wasn't some simple Illuminati conspiracy. It wasn't some simple uh, uh, Kabbalistic or uh, a Talmudic conspiracy about Jews and Hollywood. It was something more profound about illusion and imagination and about the sort of corrupt darkness of of manufacturing the dream and everyone that was involved in it and i would run through that that fantasy on the porch of the comedy store in my cocaine psychosis looking at the gutted sunset towers and the altar on the top you can read my book jerusalem syndrome for a more detailed account of my my paranoid visions but somehow or another that part of me gets reactivated when i read wagner and it's not a bad part of me it's just dark and mystical and and without without boundary and without cap and that is the experience of me reading him. So talking to him again, he's such a funny, sweet guy. Like he, he, every time I've met him, I'm like, oh, you're the guy, you're the wizard. You're the fucking wizard. God damn it. Well, okay, well, let's get to it. Tell me about it. Tell me where it comes from, wizard. Especially that Marvel Universe, man. When that, when the obese character transitions and I can't even spoil it for you. I don't know if you can handle the books. 
But if I were you, I'd read Force Majeure. I'd read I'm Losing You. I'd read Still Holding. But Marvel Universe, the last book before Roar, the new one, fucking dark shit, man. Dark wizard. That's who we're going to talk to. But he's a sweet guy and he's a funny guy. And we out, me and him and Jerry Stahl and my buddy Mike Marcus, we all went to Cantor's after a show at Largo the other night. It was like, it was a meeting of, of the dark minds. It was hilarious. Bruce Wagner, man. I have him sitting here. I'm going to try and get at it again. Whatever the hell I'm looking for, it's not clear to me. But his new book is called Roar, American Master, the Oral Biography of Roger Orr. And it's now available wherever you get books. And this is me going at it, talking with Bruce Wagner. Are you one of those fellas that uh, that uh, reflects fondly on when you had a lot of money? Uh, were you living large, Bruce? I feel like you know I'm you were. St- I'm still living large. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, large. Yes. No. Um. You know, uh, my father was. Uh, and do tell me when we start. Not we're that started. Oh, we started. My father was a spendthrift. You know, so I was yeah. uh, at the Mark Hopkins getting manicures when I was like six years old. Really. And our mother was outraged and and raged. Yeah. And, and um, but he was what we we had kind of what we did is we lived in extremely wealthy neighborhoods. Right. We outsiders. So. <laughs> We we lived in Hillsboro. Yeah, we lived in Pacific Heights, uh, cheek by jowl with the Gettys, uh-huh. and, and then Beverly Hills. But we never had any, any money? money. No. But he wanted the profile, or what was it? I think he was grandiose. Uh huh. You know, um, and he he wanted the look good. What did he do? He was uh, in broadcasting. Oh. And he would go around the country um, with dumb shiny ideas on how to revivify moribund radio stations you know and so it was um and this was in the 60s this was in the yeah in the 60s and then he had a uh, a nervous breakdown how did that manifest uh, well he he was uh, i think a little bit dodgy uh in that regard yeah a mentally little, a little bit yeah. prone to depression etc uh-huh. um Exactly like me, yeah. grandiose, yeah. prone to depression. Right, and he, I think, what he was, he wanted to. Oh, actually, what he did is he started to produce television. Uh-huh. So he produced the Les Crane show. Les Crane was the guy with the shotgun mic, the first guy that would wander into the oh, audience. Okay, very handsome, slick yeah. uh, guy. And, and I re- that was a topic, an issue show. It was a yes, and entertainment as uh-huh. well. I remember we lived in Beverly Hills, yeah. down the street from the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. Uh-huh. Ro- Romanoffs was yeah. the restaurant. Yeah, and at the age of ten or eleven, there was a twenty-four hour uh, a day pharmacy called Milton F. Christ. Yeah, you could go there at two in the morning and see Groucho yeah. or Tony Curtis. And you I'm, saw, you remember this? I remember going to the Milton F. Christ yeah. to pick up Variety for my father, uh-huh. and then it was only later in my teens when friends and I actually had the sovereignty to go there by ourselves but the mom have a lunch counter they had a counter they did but they also had booths yeah and they also sold um hairbrushes like dunhill uh-huh. hairbrushes this was my first exposure to 
to extreme wealth. Yeah. Some of them had, they all had price tags and they made sure you saw them. Yeah. They were $800. For a, a brush. $1,200 for, a, for a hairbrush. Yeah. And this was in 1964. Uh-huh. It was madness, but it, it appealed to me enormously. <laughs> sure. Well, I mean, I, what's interesting about the new book, which I haven't finished, but I, 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 I don't think it should stop, stop us. Because I, I did play Roger Orr in yes, the audio book with, yes. with, with limited uh, direction and just a, a, a spontaneous engagement. <laughs> but in talking about this stuff and in seeing how you structured this book uh, in, 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 in the way that you have, that you know your obsession or your need to excavate celebrity mm. uh, has now led you to an oral history. Yes. Which is which is interesting. So you know you you you've taken the the load off in a way to uh, to go into the 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 guts of the minds of these people yeah. and have them express themselves in relation to a historical character. Yes, and and half for real, half for are completely right. Exactly. Made but, up. Yeah. but what I noticed is that you're a little older than me, maybe a decade. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, this guy Roger Orr moves through the world that we grew up with yes. when celebrity was an intimate, uh, you know, world. Yeah. And, you know, it was like it was a handful of guys. Yeah. You know, in all the different tiers, we cover all the different tiers from you know, kind of underground comedy, beatnik writers, movies, television, fine art. You, you, I mean, this guy moves through everything. But it was unlike the the more recent books this was mostly takes place in a world where you know the intellectual circles were part of television mm. they were part of the celebrity universe we all kind of knew them from talk shows from Dick Cavett from whatever yeah. but it, it really strikes me as as nostalgic well you know the oral history was something that appealed to the inner gossip freak yeah. that I am and I was uh, always captivated by it because you could dip into it yeah. I certainly don't want people to dip into this because this is a, a true novel it's a full dressed novel but it appealed to me and when I was beginning it uh, I, I've been germinating the idea of this for a long time How's that? what is that process like you, you start the germinating is around this guy or well no it was around the form can I write a novel in the form of, of an oral, oral history? history and it appealed to me as a writer because I'm the human voice uh-huh. for me is operatic and idiosyncratic and I could I could pull out all the stops uh-huh. without having as a writer to do the ligaments of that skeleton, which is Bruce pulled up in his truck at Mark Maron's yeah. and then came in. Oh, I see. So you, get, you don't need any of that. It's, it's that, all recollection. Yes. I mean, I love simile and metaphor. Sure. And as a writer, I, I revel in that. But there are only so many. You reach a kind of glass ceiling with that. <laughs> so so the, the Marvel Universe, the last novel, that, that did it. You're, you're, no more metaphors. No more stories. A woman became a bird. I'm done. <laughs> well, people do become things. Things in this particular book, yeah. but it, it the idea, you know, now we've reached this point. A, a, a really grand theme of the book is yeah. that all is illusion, and that be, that that sounds so glib. Yeah, but you know, one of uh, the people that I adore as a writer is a, a Russian woman named Svetlana Alexevich from Belarus, where my people are from. I'm from she, Belarus. You're from but Belarus we as well, did, but you're not Jewish, are you? Yeah. Oh, really? Stone Jew. Yeah. Oh, oh, that. <laughs> Yeah, 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 me too. I just remember because we've talked before. Like, like, and I'll get into the backstory of m- my experience with you. You know, as somebody who read the books, and then the last time we talked, uh, which was years ago. 
Um, but uh, but Belarus, okay. Yeah. So she she writes these astonishingly moving and dark books, mm. uh, oral histories, Chernobyl, um, the mothers of, yeah. of, of children that right. go to war, et yeah, cetera. Yeah. And she won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Yeah. So there's emerging and uh, that that the the world of fiction yeah. and invention yeah. is as true as that of nonfiction. Is this a good thing? I, I think it is the only thing in, in essence because uh, the idea people have so many they cling to so many false truths, uh, and and what we have to look. At ourselves, we are told stories all through our lives. That's all we hold on to. It's all we we hold on to. Yeah. And I I've told was told you a story about my father. Yeah. It's much of it is a story I heard because they divorced at thirteen, and I really didn't see much of him again. So you're saying the premise then is that you know anything we get and receive as information as story, you know, is not uh, you know it's 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 it can't be true. Well, the the there's an axiom that that uh, lawyers and uh, law enforcement uh, people use all the time that the most unreliable witness is the eyewitness. Yeah. So if you start from there, the catastrophe <laughs> of that that yeah. our fantasy that whatever we are reporting yeah. is authentic and true, then if you shatter that particular vase, what I do you think, got? I think you're in much better shape, though. You know, it's like psychedelic <laughs> journeying. I think Terrence McKenna. I might have told you this. The worst part is that moment when identity uh, disassembles. Yeah. That's the most terrifying part of any. But psychedelic once you get journey. through that, you have a good time. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> or, or you, or you become insane. But that's you know? interesting because you know Burroughs said that you, you know that grammar or was it language is a dogmatic system. So like the idea of cut-ups was really his attack on basically what you're saying. That if if you have a narrative and you 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 string it along as a story and you cut it up and rearrange it, you know, spontaneously or or, or so without any real. Uh, um, Design. Yeah. What you get is some sort of time travel hallucination. Yeah, which which when you read a, a novel that you yeah. adore, or even a work of nonfiction, yeah. a biographical or historical, within two weeks it becomes very very foggy. Within a year, you can barely remember if you read the book. You certainly could not recount the well, book. Well, my to experience you know. with your book is with your books are different. Specifically, uh, um, the first one, Force Majeure, and then. I'm losing you, and then uh, which was the Kit Lightfoot book? I'll, I'll call, still holding, still holding, yeah. and then you know I just you know thank God I got uh, Marvel Universe. You, you know I've I've sort of started to read the uh, uh, the stars. What is it? The Dead uh, Stars. Dead Stars. Yeah. But I, I think that a lot of the ideas in that kind of you know get tighter in Marvel Universe, right? Yes. So. But my experience with what you're saying is that there have been times because I am. A little bit uh, boundaryless and psychologically, probably uh, at different points in my life. Porous, yeah, porous, and, and maybe almost uh, borderline at different times, <laughs> d depending on the drugs. So, but there were times where I didn't know whether uh, I was a character in the book. Nice, and, and then and then like during Marvel Universe, I was sort of upset. Like, why am I not a character in the book? Like, <laughs> I, half of my friends are in this book. I can't be a character in the book. But I've had this moment because there's something that happens in your prose around the kind of psychic, psychological, and uh, um, moral corruption of show business mm. that you know you constantly think about when you're in show business. Yeah. So the the sort of porousness in terms of like reading. Uh, uh, 
I'm losing you or something. I believe one of them I was reading when I when I met with Lauren Michaels and I was slightly high. And I really there were moments where I'm like, is Bruce writing this right now or am I really here? Well, you know, it kind of has happened to me with this book itself because um, people uh, report back to me thing in in this oral history. I I um, pose that Frederick M- Fred McMurray, the the old mm-hmm. movie and television actor, was a heroin junkie, uh, and people are they're stunned and say, yeah. "Boy, I didn't know that." And, and of course, he isn't. And then the people uh, I write a lot about uh, Ernest Hemingway's trans feminine son, Gregory uh, Hemingway, and that's in Roar. That's in Roar, yeah. and, uh, and people say, "Wow." Wow, that that's a fantastic scenario, but that actually is true. Hmm. So by the end of my experience, um, months after I finish writing the book, I am still puzzled and have to check myself as to what was real and what isn't. Another thing that I, I um, happened to me, and uh, I, I talked with you briefly about this, during the recording of the audiobook, I had a massive identity theft. And that was the perfect uh, metaphor for me. So they got your social? My social, my address, oh, so my a bunch ev- of, everything. A and b- I bunch was, of accounts opened. Yes. Yeah. And they were, you know, I would I would lock my credit card and then I would get immediately a text saying, congratulations, you've unlocked your credit card. It was very comprehensive and deep. And it really mirrored my experience with the writing of this oral history. Because every writer likes to feel that they disappear in their work. But the, the vanity and ego of a writer precludes that. You always hold on to this fantasy that you are in charge, you are yeah. in control. In Roar, all gone, 400 voices, all speaking. And in fact, uh, it. But some of them dug in characters, right, that you knew from your whole life. Yes, true. Uh, it becomes a kind of diorama or, or really a Rorschach for every reader, and yeah. including myself. Right. But for me, it was. Um, the, the 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 best writing a writer does is when he gets out of the way. Hmm. And what is the easiest thing uh, to to instigate that for me, what was, was this form. I was gone. In fact, it doesn't say by Bruce Wagner on the cover. It says compiled and edited by Bruce Wagner. Sure. So that was vital for me. And it did leave me with a sense of of sadness you know this that i bruce wagner was gone and yet i also felt that it was there was something so deeply satisfying about that to simply have the chorus of voices and also it seems like it enables you to be a spectator in the process of creating this as as opposed to you you know I, i imagine i don't know how much risk you feel when you are sort of uh, moving through some of the your more disturbing characters. But here, I mean, it seems like some of them are fairly established people yes. that you could you know use as a canvas. Yes. And then it seems like, you know, Roar himself was kind of this, you know, nebulous force that was capable of anything. True. And, you know, Stephen Fry, um, we did an audio book yeah. and you were, were uh, very grateful to have you do uh, Roger mm-hmm. Orr, and and uh, just as a, a, a parenthetical, I want to say that I had an idea of how Roger Orr would would talk, uh-huh. like a kind of an American Anthony Hopkins. Sure. And then you came and you read him like a street poet, and I thought, yes, but this is my idea. You know, the yeah. person that supposedly invented these people had his own fixed ideas, even about them. Yeah. So um, that for me was was an uh, in 
interesting development in the terms of writing the book. Well, what what was it about creating or I mean, what was the intent? How did that sort of evolve that that this guy because he's not really a zealot. He's just a guy. He is a repository of of everything creative over an arc of 50 years. Yes. I mean, as someone says, I think Woody Allen actually yeah. says in the book that he's not Zelig, but everyone that stands next to him is Zelig. <laughs> but uh, you know, back to to just briefly to yeah. what you were saying, Stephen Fry was one of the audiobook characters. He read himself and others. And Stephen knew Francis Bacon. Right. He knew John Richardson. He knew so many people that he was doing their voice, Barry Humphreys. And Stephen said um, to me that that the freedom that this allowed me to have in writing others' voices, he was glad that I didn't check beforehand with him and say, this is what I want you to say or what I'm going to have you say in the book. Are you all right with that? So I didn't, I sought no one's permission whatsoever. And I had to to impersonate those people as I was moving along. Well, it was funny because when we were doing the reading, there's a thing, we a scene you and I did where I'm, I'm or... Uh, roar and 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 you're Arsenio and I said to you I said you could probably get Arsenio to do this when you <laughs> didn't even think to do that but I think you could have you know the, the I wound up producing the audiobook and it was hell I mean it was beautiful is it done it's done it's I, I'm hoping that it comes out when the book does around the 15th um, that's our goal it had the most moving parts I think of any audiobook ever done I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it we had Wally Shawn reading himself Graydon Carter Griffin Dunn we had you know we've got Billy Lord we had Jennifer Gray Kelly Lynch I mean it's an endless group uh, of people that are reading themselves and others yeah so I'm hoping that we finish it in time but it was it was uh, 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 suddenly I became a producer, and that's not my thing. Well, now, what, uh, yeah, but what? And now, in in terms of extending the 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 world that you weave between y- you know your life and you're talking to me about these people that are part of this audiobook, that it 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 just seems like the event itself is an extension of the work that you do. That like you know I know you may know these people, but everybody sort of is. Uh, uh, no one is safe from the Wagnerin. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. You know, I'm telling you that this book is um, probably um, the a, a kind of hoax autobiography. Yeah. Um, and I, I've heard the same thing from many people that have read it of yeah. my age and, and yours yeah. and even younger, that it, it's, it's people project themselves onto whatever they're reading. And many people in the book know Many people that are in the book, yeah. uh, the average reader may not, but many of the people that I first showed the book to. So it does become a kind of um, a diorama, you know, right. of, of, of everyone's life. Yeah, I mean, I do that. I used to do, it took years for, you know, I'm good friends with Sam Lipsight, and every time I read his book, he's always the guy. And, and when I've interviewed him before, I go, okay, so when you're, you know, in the store, and he's like, it's not me. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, it's not me. It's a character. Like I can't, you know. Well, you know, I, I'm almost kind of, I love Sam, by the way, in yeah. his work. Um, my, I'm almost the opposite. Yeah. Every single person is me. Um, I noticed from, that, yeah. From the most monstrous to yeah. the most innocent. And there's a lovely Buddhist story of of a bodhisattva taking a terrified student to yeah. a mountain. Yeah. He climbed to the top of the mountain, yeah. and the bodhisattva says, look down. And the student is 
is quivering, yeah. whimpering, trembling, yeah. as the story says, and says, yeah. this is a mountain of skulls. Yeah. I, I, I don't want to look. And the Bodhisattva says, indeed, it is a mountain of skulls, but every skull without exception is your own. You nested dreams, desires, delusions in every one of those in all of your past lives. So make no mistake, none of these skulls belong to others. They are all yours. So in writing any of my books, all the skulls are mine. Well, let me, let, let's go back now because, you know, let's talk about Bud Wiggins. Let's talk about the inception <laughs> Bud. Of, of, yeah. of your work in the sense that you know, I remember giving, you know, having being given force majeure by, I believe, Janine Garofalo, probably shortly after it came out. Mm. And I read it and I'm like, Jesus Christ, this is like, you know, this is right up there with Day of the Locust. This is this is Hollywood satire at its best. And I do think you still write satire, don't mm. you? Well, um, I mean, like this, like when you take a form like the oral history yeah. and take the liberties that you took yeah. and create this sort of like strange, you know, you know, uh, character that's propelling through history sexually, intellectually and creatively. And, and people are reacting to him and telling his life story. The, the premise is. The, the context is, is satirical, no? Yes, I think in the end, I'm always a novelist. And this began, I, it was so ambitious. I didn't know how but the how fuck that, to does, begin. But that's not, doesn't mean but it's not let's satire. Say, no, but let's say uh, I thought maybe I'll do an extended shouts and murmurs, like New York style. Okay. And I'll really do something, quote, satirical. Yeah. And then I thought, no, I, I had that idea because I didn't know how to approach it. It was too large. Yeah. I, I thought, let me just set, go to base camp. I'm not going to climb the mountain yeah. of skulls, yeah. you know. Yeah. And then uh, I thought, well, no, this has to be an authentic novel. It can't be a satire. But satire is a, a word that that's pretty plastic. So I, I would yeah. agree with you that I write satire, yes. So, but when you wrote... Wiggins, like, because, like, I, I'm trying to, the, the woman I'm seeing now, I gave her the book, and she, she's like, I can't, it's too dark for me. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> but the ending of that book- Was is, that a deal breaker for you? No, no, no. <laughs> I'm kidding. I, I, I mean, it's, I, I get it. I, I just, like, my sense of humor is different. But where do you come into celebrity culture? I mean, we started to talk about that. You grew up in Beverly mm. Hills. You're going to that place, the drugstore. You're, yeah. You know, Groucho's still around. There's, you know, because you're just a little older than me, you're seeing that that changing of the guard. You, you know, the, the I started thinking about the other day that those 70s actors, when they were still in the same universe with the 40s actors, that must have been the most fucking exciting time in the world. Yeah. And I kind of remember that, but all that shit is gone. But that's how you enter Hollywood, right? Yeah, I, I you know, it's like, that was my fate. In other words, I went to school with Liz Taylor's kids. I lived next door to Broderick Crawford, who would answer the door drunk in a terry cloth robe. <laughs> I was friends with his daughter. His daughter, uh, her mother, she and her mother lived, uh, her, her name was Joan Tabor, the mother. Yeah. She was a starlet, lived yeah. with Broderick Crawford, and wound up overdosing uh, in her apartment on Doheny after they divorced. Yeah. There was always a nexus of darkness and 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 extreme wealth and but the w the way you came into it though you weren't of them so you were able to to sort of visit you were 
tourist. Yes, yes, I, I was. And then, um, you know, I went to Beverly Hills High School, dropped out and became a limousine driver. So you dropped out of high school? Dropped out of high school, became an ambulance driver first. Yeah. And because the panic zone was my comfort zone because my upbringing was so chaotic. And, Why was it so chaotic? Well, it, my father was a terrible alcoholic and there was a lot of violence. Oh, so unpredictable. In my home, yes. Yeah. And, you know, so I, uh, I would be dragged in the middle of the night by my mother to referee some, you know, half nude fight that they were having. <laughs> so you, I later I, you know, I was, um, a, 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 I became a drug addict. Yeah. <laughs> and later they told us um, that often um, people that are are are, are addicts and yeah. come from homes like that do go into emergency room work or ambulance because driving. It's comfortable. It's comfortable. And, Interesting. and so what I might I would say my body of work is to expel or a, a kind of catharsis for um, the terror that that I endured and the terror I've given a, an overlay of glamour. So there's an operatic quality to it. But Bud Wiggins originally, you know, he, he was a limo driver based on my work. What was your experience as a limo driver? I mean, like in terms of like ambulance driving, I mean, you were 17 driving an ambulance. Anyone could drive you know, an ambulance? Anyone. Anyone could. I was 18. Yeah. And you the 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 primo job to have as an ambulance driver was the I mean, as an ambulance worker yeah. was the driver yeah you worked your way up from the back of the fucking ambulance to drive that's when you were on top but you of the didn't world. need paramedic experience there were no paramedics then you just did a red cross training so i would be in the back with catatonic people yeah people that were dying and yeah. i was so terrified i forgot to turn the oxygen on i mean yeah. it was an endless but the limousine was kind of the same work in an odd way there was a lot <laughs> driving of driving sick people oh my god it was it was in, it was great i mean i drove um Olivia de Havilland, Audrey Hepburn. Really? I mean, endless. And I also drove people that I later worked for at studios. Uh -huh. You know, just people that were horrendous to yeah. me, men and women. Yeah. And and they had no memory, of course, that no, I drove do. them. No. But, Why would they? Yeah, but but another really interesting about uh, thing about that work is that I would wind up, once I wound up um, going to a speakeasy in South Central that belonged to Lou Rawls's mother, huh. and I was at, um, I would be the only white person yeah. at a club called Mr. Mitch's Another World. You know, I <laughs> I, I was literally that 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 day at night. I was driving around a prize fighter, yeah. and I was treated so beautifully yeah. as that outlier. You yeah. know, um, so I had uh, you know a, a lot of extraordinary experiences. One of them, Super Bud Wiggins esque. I had a girlfriend um, in in elementary school. Uh -huh. And I went in my full limo outfit to pick someone up at the airport, and she and her twin sister are waiting for someone to get off the plane. So I'm wearing my hat and sinking as far as I can into the wall, oh, yeah. and off comes Mongo Santa Maria. That's who they were meeting, their their dear friend. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, I don't know, lover, I just yeah. don't know, And but it was very intimate, and that I, I skulked out of the airport, and that night I, I got taken um, by a, a con man 
Um, sometimes you could grab jobs that weren't on the official yeah, roster, right, sure. you know, and there would be a payoff yeah. uh, to the person that was dispatching. I drove this guy around for 10 hours and we would stop at hotels and he would disappear into the hotel, come out with people from the hotel, point to the limousine. This went happened over and over again. Yeah. Finally, he we celebrated. He's going to buy me a lobster yeah. dinner at, a, at the Hilton yeah. down, at the airport. And he walks out. <laughs> So I lost $600 and the humiliation of it. Sure. But Wiggins was a way that, you know, at, at that point in my life, I was 25, 26, 27. When you I, were writing Force Majeure? No, uh, Force Majeure was a little b- bit later, yeah. but I was in the saddle writing just, I was a hack, as Gore Vidal writes beautifully yeah. about this. Oh, you're writing screenplays. I was a shit hack, but I was making enough money at 25 or 26. I mean, I went from selling ink and toner and copy machines yeah. that scam yeah. to doing the scam of writing just horrific scripts t- two times a year and i just and was selling them selling them yeah because i had a movie in the can that was never released which uh, one was that young lust oh yeah and was that a, is that a b movie or a good movie young or? lust was a, a a great script yeah that 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 was fucked up by the, the 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 director and and so this was your intention was to be a screenwriter. My intention, you know, I was obsessed with books from a young age. Yeah. Stole books, thousands of dollars worth of books. Worked at bookstores in order to steal books. Uh, I've made amends. Oh, good. <laughs> now, but um, my my intention was to to write screenplays, but always in the back of my head, it was to write prose because that's the only thing I could really control. Screenwriting is too ephemeral, too non, it's too collaborative. Oh, yeah, and it gets away know. from you. As, yeah. soon as, you, as soon as you sell it, it's over. Yeah, it's over. So, yes. So what was the story, like on Force Majeure, you know, so obviously Bud Wiggins is probably more uh, identifiably you than as than characters later where you know everything just becomes part of your psyche right yeah yeah but, Wiggins was um you know my I really had read uh, Fitz F Scott Fitzgerald's book of short stories some yeah. of which are published pu- published posthumously yeah. the Pat Hobby stories yeah which is about a failed alcoholic over the hill screenwriter yeah so I was writing about myself as a failed opiate addicted screenwriter who constantly sold himself out and yeah. and uh and it was an embarrassment to himself and the world and that was a catharsis if i could be in control of his um of his falling apart yes if i could orchestrate that it'd be the maybe architect you could save of your it. life maybe i could save my life <laughs> and actually i think it worked yeah. because i don't th- i think that I would have died uh, if I had if I did not have something that I could hold fast and uh, something that I, I loved, which was writing prose. Yeah, I'm, I'm built to be a prose well, writer. It's, it's, yeah. It was exciting to because like I got hold of Marvel Universe because you gave it to me because I'd gotten one of the ones that were released onto the internet and the, and the print was too small and there were no page numbers but you gave me this beautiful copy of it and Bud is back Bud Wiggins is back then and, and you <laughs> we haven't seen him since Force Majeure right and I just True. I like that you updated that this is an old man now and he's fucked up on meth and the lottery <laughs> you know <laughs> It, it, yeah. You know, Marvel is interesting. Um, you know, I, I had to release it um, into the public domain because my the publisher canceled it. Yeah, I want to I yeah. talk about that, but I also want to talk about, well, let's start with Force Majeure, because you self-published that too. Yes. How, wh- why was that? You couldn't sell it? Well, no, I I, I didn't know any better. I, I was writing short stories and... 
passing them around with friends. I would type them up, make copies and of them. And at this point, you have famous friends? Um, not so, yeah. uh, but there was a, um, a gentleman named Cotty Chubb, Caldicott Chubb, who's a producer now, and he had some experience in publishing books. Pretty he, great name. Yes, and he had worked, uh, I think, on a book with the late Lloyd Fonville, a screenwriter about William Eggleston. He had some experience, so he said, let's, let's just publish this. We're getting such good feedback. Yeah, yeah. We did a thousand copies, sold it out of Book Soup. Ed Pressman optioned it. Oliver Stone optioned it. I got reviewed, and based on a review, I got a book deal with Random House to expand those short stories into a novel. So I didn't know anything. I didn't know any better. So, oh, so so they were they, the self-published was short stories, and then Force Majeure became the novel that Random House put out. Yeah, it was it was Force Majeure, the Bud Wiggins stories, and that just became Force Majeure. Oh man, I wonder that must be hard to find the bud wiggins stories i'll get you one you <laughs> yeah i think i think they're like you can it's like 150 dollars on ebay or something like that you but know. then like you do like how do you get from there to wild palms to do like you know, the 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 graphic thing I, I i that was um let's see someone introduced me to james truman who became a good friend of mine yeah. james truman became the creative head of condé, condé nast okay and that was when they made him the editor of the new details they were revamping details and someone told him that he should talk to me and i he said he, he what about a, a cartoon yeah and i thought that was odd enough yeah and, and then i came up with wild palms which is a, a very subversive cartoon and we did because that. of why because of the well the politics it, it was of it? It, again i did a lot of it, what i did with roar there were real people in it yeah uh, we would have um uh, the we would storyboard yeah it and if it was mark Marin in this i would do storyboards of you photographs of you and uh i could do whatever i wanted so it was darkly darkly paranoid and and um is that where you were at i'm always it's always where I'm at. <laughs> so we did that, and then uh, I had an agent that also represented David Lynch, uh, Tony um, Tony Krantz, uh -huh. who was a kind of very old school agent. Did what agents are supposed yeah, to do? Yeah, brings Exciting. people together again. The proximity to old Hollywood is kind of wild, yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So that that kind of Oliver, um, who knew me through Force Oliver Majeure, Stone? yeah, asked me, um, said that he would come aboard as a producer and. I hold up at the Chateau Marmont just like any proper um, drug addict, elegant dope, dope fiend, and you know what I mean, and <laughs> yeah. and, and did it, you know, lived and there wrote for it out. two, lived Laid there for three out. months. You, mean yeah. you wrote the script for the miniseries. Yep, yep. And and how was that received? Because it, it seems like the politics of it are, are kind of prescient. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It was um, right wing Scientologist. Yes. Yes. All of the, everyone's in it with children. Who, yeah. With children who kill. Um, it was pre-Dahmer. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it was, uh, it's two camps. Those who feel it was prescient, as you say, and um, and liked the, the kind of operatic camp yeah. nature and, and literacy of it. Yeah. People quoting um, Whitman. I mean, it was just, uh, <laughs> uh, you, you'll never see anything like it again on television. And then others that were confused and thought too ambitious, et cetera. Yeah. And it wasn't helped by, I think ABC had a, an 800 number where you could call in to kind of find out exactly yeah. what happened that oh, week. Really? Not a great idea, you know. <laughs> That's crazy. But I had the time of my life, and we had people like Catherine Bigelow directing it. I oh, mean, yeah. It was, uh, but again, before I knew anything, uh, what a showrunner was, you know, I, I, I had a kind of good fortune, 
and and misfortune to be dropped into the cauldron through my life, you know. I know. What do you what do you what do you attribute that to? Just luck? Yeah, I think it's just karma, you know. Is it karma? I mean, like when do you get sober? Or are you 12 years ago? Oh, so you, you yeah, stayed yeah, at it. Yeah. So, but like Adderall brought me down too. Oh yeah? Yeah. Got yeah. tired of thinking. <laughs> Well, you t- you th- you think too much with Adderall, but I was I was taking um, a, a large amounts of Vicodin, and then the Adderall is like a, a get the balance a, it's going. like a speedball. Sure, and you you get um, you get very sophisticatedly um, paranoid, <laughs> and so you can talk when people are saying you're not yourself. Yeah, you can give a profoundly good argument as to why you are yourself. And, yeah, but yeah. all the while you're you're a stone's throw from psychosis. You know. Well, yeah, the psychosis with the speedy stuff is pretty prevalent. Yeah, yeah, it comes. The voices come, Bruce. I want to hear more about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, but the trilogy. Then I'm losing you. I'll let you go and still holding. Yeah. Did you see that as a trilogy to begin with? No, I'm a title freak. And so, okay, so that's yeah. Me I'm, too. I, I think I stole it from you. <laughs> I have a a series of uh, of CDs. One's called uh, "Not Sold Out." One's called "Tickets Still Available," and the last one is "Final Engagement." It's good. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> I, good. But it's it, I didn't think it, it just it became a thematic thing. Yeah, so. titles for me have always been some kind of weird engine to whatever it is, uh, whatever book I'm I'm working on. If I can come up with a title that's yeah. worthy, um, then I'm you know it's like Warren Zevon. You know your yeah. your ride's here. You know what I mean? Oh, really? So that's where you start. That's the entry. Often, and if I can't find a title, um, I'm I'm in distress because it seems like I'm losing you. That was who was the cancerous guy at the heart of that one? What was his name? Um, Zev. Zev Turtletop? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Zev Turtletop, and then the Stealer of Energy, right? The massage yeah, therapist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, but it was just what struck me about that book, and I, you know, and it, it blew my mind. After Force Majeure, was just, you know, the the sort of way you could move through consciousness of different people, you know, and capture like it, it is a psychological landscape that you're creating, and there's inner dialogue, inner monologues mm-hmm. of everybody, right? Yeah. And you just kind of move through like fifteen to twenty in that book, probably, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And you get kind of attached to these yeah. streams of consciousness, and they all kind of weave together into this horrible <laughs> psychic uh, uh, gunk. <laughs> well, if you if you get out of the way, yeah, and you are in love with your characters, and uh, and I mean in love with the the Steeler of Energy is one of the best characters in the world. Well, thank you. If you're in <laughs> in love with the very worst, meaning the worst of yourself, then you can disappear. And there's a great beauty in that process for uh, me. Uh, you know, identity theft all around. You know, the, right, yeah, the identity okay. theft of energy. Yeah. So that becomes me. And you you do black out in a sense. It becomes a, a, a really profound meditation. Oh, so you're to channeling? Do you know, yes, you are. But what are you channeling? You're channeling your own mountain of skulls. You know, yeah, so, I, get, I get that. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, and I understand the repetition of that. But like, there's some, and I went through this. This is what the, the backstory I was going to 
talk about was because of my profound experience with whichever book it was, it was either I'm losing your force majeure, you know, that I interviewed for Air America once. It yes. was supposed to be a 10 minute interview, but I come out here, you know, we're doing the show in New York and I've got a DAT recorder and we sit at some restaurant and it felt like it was nine hours. We like sat there for <laughs> nine because I had decided in my head and it still holds. I'm like, where the fuck is Bruce Wagner getting this shit? He's pulling it out of the sky, but there's something important about it because it transcends just a guy making shit up well uh uh it's lovely to hear it's lovely to hear <laughs> like i keep wanting like the last time i was with you i'm like what where's the magic you're some sort of wizard and now i'm here again demanding that you're a wizard not just a aging jew <laughs> <laughs> well you know the the idea of of this kind of blackout mm. where one has access to those things that that I, I think touch and disturb all of us mm. is essential to the, the 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 kind of poetic process of writing a novel. And for me, it is a, a poetic process. Um, I I was able in this form also to put next to each other very um, almost poignant and uh, and and tragicomic musings and memories of, of people that are talking with hardcore comedy and satire without it jumping the rails. Yeah. Um, but in terms of, uh, of one being attuned to what's out there in the ether yeah. and, and meaning face-to-face -face now, um, I can't quite explain uh, that process, but a lot of it comes from experience um you know when when you last night i was falling asleep yeah and um i realized for a moment that i was in an airport and there were two figures and yeah. i had been worried about sleeping yeah and then i realized in the dream ah dream right so the idea to be able to identify dream and then to be comfortable with dream is essential for the work that I do. And it was even more essential for Roar because I the ligaments of typical and traditional writing were gone. And it was an oratory. It became oratorial, you know, for the, well, the chorus of voices. Because yeah, sometimes when I'm in waking consciousness, I'm living in a completely you know, relatively mundane but, but different life. Like I, 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 in waking consciousness, I'm like, you know, I just have, there's a whole other Mark Maron, same time zone, but doing a totally different life, but not, not anything like spectacular, but it's just like, I wake up in this zone sort of like, oh, that was the other life. Yeah. It's well, a very bizarre thing. All illusion, you know, and, and, and it is true that we do read, uh, lead multiple lives and, and what we cling to is that this life is the real one. But I, right. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah I, I like see my problem with being as you know porously boundaried is that like if I get too far into that, you know, things will break apart for me. But you don't mind that space. Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> I court it. No, it, it is. Uh, there is a certain terror mark to to having a a so called identity. And it was um, it was instructive for me to to have this identity theft happen. Huh. This this illusion that I had um, 
or that we all have yeah. my social security number, yeah. mine, you know, um, <laughs> my bank, mine, inviolable. Wells Fargo will not let this happen, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, and it all got th- thrown out. And, you know, Leonard Cohen had that great phrase when someone stole money from him in yeah. the millions. He yeah. said, it put a dent in my mood. Yeah. So I was concussed, <laughs> you know, and then I woke up one morning and I was free. You know, this notion of Bruce Wagner and his finances yes. became so macabre and, and ludicrous yeah. that I was free from it. So, in, in essence, I said, let them come. Because you, know. you saw how easily it was just manipulated and taken away. Well, not, not only, yes, but not only that, but how easily I was riled, how easily my, the things well, what, I had well, constructed yeah, around it. But you know. that, that's a fear of having all your money stolen. Well, you know, if if that had happened, perhaps we'd be ha- having a different conversation. But you were able to catch it. Yes, but if my money was stolen, then what? That's where I go in my books. In other words, it's all going to be stolen at the end. All of it. Yes. Everything. So that's where I go in my books as a kind of rehearsal. So why not push it? Yes. It's a rehearsal for (laughs) for death and dissolution, you know, and which most people fear um, uh, because we are not we're not hardwired to for memento mori that d- use death as one's advisor or to accept it you mean yeah right. that 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 death will come and it will come either unexpectedly or accidentally or it will come knowing that uh, you have 2 years etc the scene in um still holding the plane crash scene mm. that's crazy yeah that yeah. was a, one of the most disturbing things ever written in that poor girl the assistant right well we can give it away yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, it's John Waters is obsessed with that particular. He is. Yeah, it's. Uh, I it's have two thousand and three. We can spoil it. Yeah. Yes. So I have a, a woman who is uh, terrified of flying, and she lives in Los Angeles. Her father's dying in New York. She takes a train because she's so terrified. She gets there too late, and she says never again. Yeah. So there is in real life a course. I don't know if they have it anymore, but at the time yeah. I was writing the book in San Francisco, where it's a, a three week training where yeah. you. you come into a hangar you sit in a jet they play tapes of what all the sounds yeah, yeah, on yeah. the jet are etc cetera, etc cetera. just to comfort you it's a comfort and to oh, give you, you knowledge you, you and and the the end of this real life flight yeah, is in a yeah. is a graduation flight yeah. where they fly from san francisco to la <laughs> that plane goes down you, you monster know. but <laughs> the saving grace is that yeah. she comforts yeah. the woman next to her yeah. who is who's completely undone and that is a good way to go out yes. i believe it to this day well i well i think that you saying about this sort of like you know uh, realizing death as humans and not really being wired to accept it in that you know when i think about that in relation to how all your characters go down <laughs> i mean that's the great joke with you isn't it it's like if this <laughs> If this is if this is inevitable, I'm gonna really make this big. Like you know, you know, for me, uh, without transcendence. In other words, I didn't want my book to be a, a catalog raisonné of horror. I, I don't want my 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 all my work to yes. be that. There has to be transcendence, right? And in fact, um, uh, in this book, Roar, uh, Roar, yeah, he in his uh, never felt comfortable in his own body, yeah. Um, I relate to that. I I only really felt comfortable in other people's bodies. Right. But uh, he 
uh, wants to he's thinking of transitioning from an early age he becomes friends with Jan Morris the the um, the famous writer yeah. who was one of the first um, people to to become uh, trans femme uh-huh. and he decides that he wants to have that surgery so he does in his 60s then he decides that he wants to undo that surgery and you know the, the way our culture is now is that there is no nuance whatsoever yeah roger Orr decides to go back not because he feels he made a mistake yeah he doesn't feel that he feels that he's he's embarrassed that he wants to be either gender Yes. He's much more uh, uh, of a Buddhist. He wants to be outside the third gender. Uh, the idea that, that the, the body is a hotel and to redecorate the hotel room when you're going to be moving on becomes something repulsive to him. So there are a lot of subtleties that, that, you know, that one can't explore. But that About for me transcendence. is it, it, that's transcendence. No, I get it. Yeah. And, I, and I think that was that is what balances it is that, you know, somehow or another, the humanity of these monsters uh, is 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 totally sympathetic. I mean, you, you know, you do deal with, you know, I think morally corrupt people who do evil things, but most of them are just tragic and somehow the humor of them, like the, you know, the, 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 the desire to become more obese in and of itself (laughs) consciously is it's, it's hilarious and it's brutal. But, but before we get into the canceling of that Mm -hmm. whole thing, but but when did the Buddhist thing happen? Because I remember in, it seemed to first appear in, it really in a big way and still holding, right? Yes, yes. Like that was literally a Book of the Dead trip in a way. Yes. And when did that, because it seems like you believe this stuff. Well, um, I, I believe uh, that you, you, often when I write about Buddhism or American Buddhism, um, I apply the same hierarchy that I do to Hollywood uh-huh. because it's it, it, humans bring so many flaws to the party. Uh, there's a, a famous story about oh, that's interesting. Uh, it's like Burroughs Western Lands. Yes, right. Yes, and there there's a famous hermit, a Buddhist hermit, who whose um, downfall was that he wanted to be the most famous hermit. <laughs> so it, it you know Hollywood. <laughs> Can 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 sure. transmigrate, uh-huh. you know. So I I generally um, I write about things in their purity, you know, in in a a, a form that that feels pure and intuitive to me. Mm. But when you enter into dogma, even uh, uh, American Buddhism, etc., then I I go to town, you know. Yeah, yeah. In what way? Well, um, I I I basically. Uh, run my truck through the plate glass of that particular Starbucks. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, um, I, because I want to disrupt that. And if something hits me wrong and feels hypocritical to me, or. So is, you disrupt it by, by putting flawed people into it. Well, the, we are all really flawed, but yeah. I want to. I, yeah, what are we judging ourselves against? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah, because I say that too. Like everyone's flawed, everyone's mentally ill. But what what is the barometer of integrity on that one? (laughs) Do you got a guy? I can't picture anybody. Well, I think uh, the only sane one among us is James Corden. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, hang your hopes on that guy. Yeah, 
But yeah, but uh, but that okay. That's interesting because like it, it seemed that in in uh, in still holding, like you know, there was a there was a whole secondary narrative around the language of that Buddhism. Yes. Right? Oh yes. And, and in fact, it, there's a, the Bardo guidebook. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, right. That's right. And and Lincoln's Bardo. Yeah. George Saunders' great book is a part of Roar as well. Yeah. Um. Th- there was uh, a. I used the Bardo guidebook and many other Buddhist texts, and when it came time for me to get permission, no one would give it to me. Huh. These Buddhist texts where I was using three or four sentences, except this man who was a Rinpoche who wrote the Bardo guidebook. He said, use whatever you like free of charge. Uh-huh. And I went to thank him. Um, he, he has a, um, a retreat up in Northern California. Yeah. Uh, I consider him to be a teacher. Yeah, and do you are you practicing? No, but it's it's it sort of. It, I mean, you practice. I practice through my work. You yeah, may, but, you but may practice through this. But this your- makes sense to you. This is an, a, a spiritual system that you find comfort in. Um, I you know I don't I don't know if I find uh, any spiritual systems comforting. The spiritual systems <laughs> I find comforting <laughs> yeah. to me yeah. are when I am out of the way. And 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 in the river of my books, okay, in that sure. stream, because there's no self there. Channeling. It's so difficult to remove self from spiritual work. From oh yeah, you know. but but you you fill yourself up. You are a, a curious person, because like that's one of the things that you see. You know, from even from like I'm losing you, which was you know, about cell phones, that you were able to evolve with the culture into dead stars, which has is driven a lot by texting. Oh, my God, yes. And, I mean, just, just this morning, I was looking at um, a picture of Christina Ricci and yeah. her husband, yeah. and it said, a rare red carpet photo. Yeah. So I was thinking... The the genius of that, you know, like they're going to sell this at Sotheby's or yeah, something. Yeah. You know, a, this is a rare red. Yeah. Uh, the ge- the absolute anomalous genius of that. So I am I'm plugged into pop culture. Well, yeah, because in yeah. In, in Marvel Universe, it's so driven by Instagram posts. Yeah, and and the language of Instagram posts that your sensitivity to it, like you must just have like I don't know if it comes from. A, uh, a shattered need to connect from your childhood or whatever, but you're seem to be uh, constantly absorbing, you know, out of it, out of compulsion. Yeah. I, I think that, as you said, I am, um, all the doors are open right. for me. Um, you know, and, God, I, I'm, you know, when I finish a book, I'm, I'm just so emotional, you know, I'm so hyper attuned to the world mm. in, in a sense. And I was listening, you know that the Stevie Winwood song back in the high life? Yeah. I just was sobbing listening to it because <laughs> that, that one. <laughs> I'll give you my take on yeah, that. Yeah. Um back in the high life again, all the doors that once were closed yeah. will all open. Uh, yeah. And for me that is a ghost story. That's a grave song. Yeah. Haunted haunted and the doors opening is is leaving this particular costume party Uh and moving to the next one yeah that's where the real party is you know so uh, it's it's complicated with me i'm wide open to the culture and and to rage and 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 horror yeah uh um but i'm also 
kind of joyously open to the proximity of of death, the shortness of this life, yeah, and love. You know, uh, when you you meet someone that uh, is is part of your tribe in an in a recognizable yes, way. Yes, I mean, we are all the same it. tribe, but then yes, no, yeah, you know. I get it. I get so it. that's the joyousness for me. So um, you appreciate that. I I'm I'm super appreciative, but I'm also. Um, I do. I'm. I'm. I absorb. You know. Yeah. Uh, I. 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 I close my. I black out in a sense, and I absorb the detritus of of the culture. Yes. And and then I sink down deeper into the 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 agony of the culture. Yeah. And then hopefully I rise to the transcendent aspects of that. You know. Oh yeah. Yeah. That sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. So let's talk about the journey of uh, that Marvel Universe book because you chose to take it away from your publisher. Because of their fear, their 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 uh, sensitivity. Yeah. What 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 was it? What well, happened? There, you know, the 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 cancel speak word is problematic. Uh-huh. And uh, I had written about a social media beloved social media character who you referenced yeah. earlier. Fat She's Joan. Fat Joan. She's yeah. like six or seven hundred pounds. And wants to break the thousand pound barrier. She named herself after the fat Jew or the fat yeah, Jewish. That guy's annoying. Okay. Fine. But she yeah, okay. was into him. Yeah. And so she called herself Fat Joan. And the publisher took a long time to get back to me and said that that's um, unconscionable. We, you cannot, the, his words were, you cannot even have a fictional character but the fucking, call themselves the, the, that. The, the irony of that is did he read the rest of the book? This Jesus was, fuck. This was someone that was a long-term fan of mine. So I I felt for him because this this publishing house was a kind of jewel box for him. Yeah. I think he uh, around that time made a deal for distribution with Simon and Schuster, which uh-huh. Roar is distributing now. Ironically. Okay. I felt that he had sensitivity readers. He had someone read it for body positivity. He had uh, racial and gender readers. And I think uh, this is my idea, um, my narrative, my fantasy. I don't know if it's true that, that they told him you're in danger of losing this house if you publish this book. It's not going to be worth the heat you're going to get. Holy shit! Yeah. Because cause that book, like those were that, those are minor transgressions. My, well, it, it, if you want to look at it in that way, at what was in the book? Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah, they're, they're they're so on the top. They're floating on the top. Totally. Uh, the the iceberg of the book. He didn't even want to get into it, and I don't blame him. But I. I did feel for him. So I decided to release it onto the internet, which I was told not to. Um, and I, I've gotten more response from Marvel Universe than many of my books. It's the only book that will never be out of print. It lives on the internet. It was immediately available um, by a company in Vegas that publishes public domain. Yeah. My friend Sam Wasson uh, started a publishing house called Felix Farmer. They published it in a limited edition. That's the edition. cop I have. Yeah. Yes, uh, at Book Soup, just like Force Majeure. So yeah. it kind of came full, full circle. circle. Yeah. But Roar, uh, I pitched to someone on the a big house on the East Coast. Okay. And a good man uh, was vice president, huge fan of mine, said everyone at the house was a big fan of my work. And he, as we got further along, I, g- I gave him the first 15 pages of what's in the, ex- the, the book now. Yeah. And he loved it. And it got to a certain point. And I think that um, 
it, people realize that this is a, a, a sixty-year, sixty-eight-year-old Jewish man, yeah, white man, who is talking. Uh, his main character is a biracial, uh, trans-feminine uh, man. Uh, originally, yeah. who decides then to reverse his surgery, et cetera. I don't even think they got that far. They just needed to hear that a, a an old Jewish white guy was yeah. writing about a biracial character. I think that that was it. Yeah. And then he on the phone kind of had the, the, the guy before him from Marvel Universe had the audacity to tell me that I really shouldn't be writing about outsiders when huh. this is what I am an outsider and yeah. fuck anyone that wants to challenge me on that yeah. or uh, the, the, and, and the people that I embrace and love and want to memorialize are those on the outside, always has been. So um, they turned it down. And then Roar. I, then I, this big house on the East Coast, Roar. Roger Orr, yeah. And Roar then, um, my agent, uh, Andrew Wiley, yeah. turned me on to, um, I think the the single bravest publisher in America now, Tony Lyons, uh-huh. uh, who whose company Skyhorse uh, owns an imprint uh, called Arcade. Yeah. Arcade was started by Richard Seaver and published Samuel Beckett. Yeah, uh, a, a lovely um, historicity to it. Yeah, and. Tony said, yes, let's do it. And he wanted the book to look like a real biography. Yeah. So it, it's got a flat matte finish. It's got deckled edge pages. It's got end pages. It's hefty. It's beautiful. And he, the marketing people wanted me to say by Bruce Wagner. He said, no, leave compiled and edited by Bruce Wagner. Yeah. The back of the book yeah. has 12 blurbs from people that are very well-known people. Yeah. And Many of them are dead, but the blurb <laughs> says the exact same thing. So the legal argument would be that no reasonable reader could be reading and look at James Baldwin, Oprah Winfrey, Sharon Tate, you know, yeah. Jonathan Lethem, Amanda Gorman, and and believe that they were all saying the exact same thing about the book. Well, this is something that in their sleep, lawyers say, no, don't do it. Don't do it. You sure. can't do it. But Tony's a lawyer. And um, and thought, no, this is this is a this is a novel you've written. This is satire, and it will be, you know, it's understood. So I had a very brave and uh, publisher. Otherwise, I would I would have put it on the internet again. I just would have in the public domain. I wouldn't have charged a dime for it. I uh, to this day, the Marvel Universe is out there. You can do, you can make a movie of it. Someone's doing an audio book and changing the ending of it. All I care is that people say, here's where it lives in its original uh, form yeah. on Bruce Wagner.LA, whatever. Yeah. I don't even know the name of this website I created yeah. really for the for for the Marvel Universe. Sure. I didn't want to say it's a dollar ninety. Right. It's two dollars and thirty cents. Yeah. You know, it's Mother's Day. Yeah. It's fifty nine <laughs> cents. You know. I didn't want any of it. It's like it's gone, and and that was a very liberating thing for me. That was like the the woman on the on the plane that crashed. Yeah, I found myself with a book that was dying, and now it lives. Yeah, 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 and it's great. Thank you. <laughs>
It was great. I couldn't not read it. I was so happy that you got me another copy. I hope you feel the same way about Rama. Yeah, I, well, I did. <laughs> I, I played the part, and I'm about, you know, I, I started, I'm in it, but I, I just got overwhelmed. I couldn't get it done before I no, got No, no, no. It, it's a, it's a, uh, uh, it is a, a, a kind of an overwhelming book, uh, entertaining, I hope. But no, it's your read um, was, it was, again, so interesting to me because we had um we had people reading themselves and others and uh it was uh, always unexpected yeah uh um or but but roger was such a roar was well, such i know a, when you asked me i figured like well he knows that what i do so i'll do it yeah but i you you really did him as a street poet which he is yeah um you know he's a street poet uh that that He's like a um, a Pulitzer or uh, you know National Book Award yeah, guy. Yeah. Also a sculptor, a dermatologist. I mean, you know, he, sure. he covers the waterfront. But uh, that was great fun. I really oh, I thank you for that. And like, what's going on with like you know, in and out over the years? You've done screenplays. Some yes. have been made. Yeah, I mean, uh, the the last one. Uh, was Cronenberg, you know, Maps to the Stars with Julianne Moore. How'd that come out? Oh, I loved it. I I, I was like Cinderella. Uh, she won her first Best Actress at oh, Cannes. You at know what? Cannes I saw for that. It. that was crazy. Yeah, That's a yeah, great yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, she was great in that. Yeah, she was amazing. I accepted the award for her because she had left for New York and then I flew to New York, gave yeah. her the award, flew home, and I was like Bud Wiggins again, you know. But last year, uh, something really interesting thing happened to me. My, I have a book called I Met Someone. Yeah. And it's about a, um, a, a Hollywood Academy Award winning actress yeah. who's um, who's gay yeah. and marries a much younger uh, woman who's kind of a fledgling photographer, doesn't know right. what to do with her life. And the this Academy Award winning actress gave up her own baby daughter when she was 15 and never went to look for her. She decides she's going to go look for her and she finds her and it's her wife. Come on. She married her, yeah. her daughter. So a woman named Josie Ho, who is an um, an actress uh, from Hong Kong and a producer, um, decided she wanted to make that into a movie. So Mike Figgis flew to Hong Kong, and they made a movie, Hong Kong for Hollywood. Yeah. It's just, it's it's so surreal. Yeah. And it's... It's that it's I met someone. So uh, hopefully that will come out um, maybe to one of the festivals in in spring. Oh, that's uh, exciting. Uh, yeah. How do you feel about the uh, I'm losing you? My yeah. my version. You know, I think that um, so hard. It, it's you know, it was much. Um, it wasn't bold or radical. It was almost kind of funereal. And I didn't know what I was doing. Mm. And um, I, I was operating under. Um, some some fantasy that I should do something stately, and uh, so you know I don't regret it because it's impossible to regret. But then I did um, a digital film after that called Women in Film, which was another section of I'm Losing You that was much closer to what I would have done. Uh-huh. So I, I've often uh, you know I had the fantasy of, of one day doing that movie all over again, yeah. you know, but that's an absurdity. We go through different parts of our lives. All of my books. And the films and even Wild Palms, things I've worked on, represent uh, another room in that diorama. You know, yeah. it's the Museum of Natural, one's own personal yeah. natural history. And so you, 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 you can look back 
and, and you can look forward with the same um, kind of uh, thrill or creeping dread. But it's all it's all a wash, Mark. It's all a wash. It's a wash, but it's also it, yeah. it's all a singular uh, kind of conversation. True. You, you know, like, I mean, when I think about all the work I've done, because not, I, you know, comics are sort of in a situation where you do the hour, you, you record the hour, and then you let it go. And it's not always because it's 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 going to be timely. It's just what you do. So I have to look at everything I've ever done over the last, you know, three decades. It's just an ongoing conversation that evolves. That's how I, you know, it, it may be a wash, but it's kind of out there. And like you said, you release the Marvel Universe into the Internet. And, you know, five years down the road, you know, someone's going to come up to you and go like the reason I wrote the new Bible. Yes. Was because of that one part. of you, you, So. It's it's part of uh, an ongoing kind of uh, hopefully uh, relatively eternal conversation. Yeah, you know, I, I was just uh, talking with a friend, and we were talking about writers and and who reads your books and does anyone read them? Right. And this idea that that you that you have a, a hit book, and and finally that moment has come where thousands, untold thousands, yeah. are in love with your book. Yeah. But there's one of those people is the one that hunts you down and kills you because they loved the book so much. Yeah. You know, the, that's what I mean in essence. It's all um, an illusion. It's misery. Yeah, it's misery. Right, that, that movie, Misery. But like, but it's interesting, though, because like in your books, and I've read a lot of books, but I'm not insanely well-read, but I have very uh, you know vivid sort of emotional connections to several different scenes over several different books that you've written, and they never go away. <laughs> well, that probably you know that is the 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 highest compliment that I could receive uh, um because that means the the reader you yeah. entered into this world this sacred world of communion really yeah, yeah. and and everyone blacked out yeah you know yeah. and that's that's to me thank you i mean it can't get any any better for me than that well thank you for talking to me sir bless you nice to see you bruce thank you mark Okay, so I think I got some stuff. I think I got it. I got I got closer anyways. I got as much as I'm going to get. Read the books. Roar, American Master, the oral biography of Roger Orr is now available wherever you get books. But I'm telling you, force majeure, I'm losing you, still holding the Marvel Universe origin stories if you can get hold of one. All right? Fucking love that guy. Hang out, people. Hang out. Hey. Folks, if you're a full Marin subscriber to WTF, we started something new this week. Brendan and I are telling the oral history of our original radio show, Morning Sedition. For those of you who remember that show from nearly two decades ago, we'll go back to listen to some of the stuff that we think made it great. And if you never heard any of it before, it's your chance to find out what we were like before WTF when Brendan and I were figuring out how we do whatever it is we do. As we started to evolve these ideas of characters and bits, one thing was that, like, you know, Jim Earl, who had been the one who was doing the most on-air characters, um, we were like, just come up with more stuff, like whatever you could think of. And one thing he thought of, which we at first couldn't really kind of configure into the the show, was that he would do obituaries of people that were just jokes about people who had died. And oh, God, <laughs> it wasn't the- political. It wasn't like you know, in any way uh, uh, appropriate, he Uh. would just find these things funny. 
And we kind of figured the way to, this could work as satire if you're satirizing the kind of gauzy, uh, uh, maudlin, sentimental way that um, entertainment to, entertainment news <laughs> does remembrances of people. Right, right. With them, and we so had the he music. became, right, the music and everything. And he God. became this 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 obit reader who was always crying he cried through the whole thing as he did it and would p- pretend it was just his allergies or that someone was chopping, chopping onions, onions. Who's chopping onions <laughs> <laughs> and in the meantime it was just this cover for these jokes that were perfect but about a person who had just died <laughs> so like was... that day james griffin co-founder of the band bread oh this week, the music world received word that James Griffin, founding member of the soft rock group Bread, is toast. <laughs> In a statement released today to hopeful fans, Griffin's manager said there was no truth to the rumor he's risen. <laughs> but I guess that news is pretty stale by now. Oh, no. <laughs> Ugh, got something in my eyes. Who's chopping onions? Look, we're going to keep going with this in future weeks because there's so much more to share and we're looking to bring on some guests who are there for the whole thing. It's going to be exciting. If you want to subscribe to WTF Plus and get the full Marin bonus material, go to the link in the episode description or click on WTF Plus at WTFPod.com. Also, while you're in the episode description, click the link to submit a question for our next Ask Mark Anything episode, okay? Upcoming dates. Here we go. Tomorrow, Friday, I'm in Eugene, Oregon at the Holt Center. Sold out. Bend, Oregon at the Tower Theater. Sold out. Asheville, North Carolina at the Orange Peel. Actually, I believe that's sold out, too. And then Nashville, Tennessee, I'm at the James K. Polk Center on Saturday, December 3rd. Not sold out. And my HBO special taping is at Town Hall in New York City on Thursday, December 8th. There are still tickets to the second show. Go to WTFPod.com slash tour for all dates and ticket info. Now, here's some guitar, okay? Guitar. A little, uh, uh, a little unusual guitar for me, I think.
Boomer lives. Monkey in La Fonda. Cat angels everywhere. Thank you.